we're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 11, starting in verse 16 and going through to chapter 12, verse 10. I repeat, let no one take from me, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool, since many are boasting in the way the world does. I, will t- I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, whatever, whenever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. I, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40, 40 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led in sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratas has had the city of the of the Dama- yeah, sorry, Damascens uh, guarded in order to arrest me. I was lowered in a basket from the window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to the paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one, had permit, be, no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about, this, about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weakness." Even if I should choose to boast, I would, not be a, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one would think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these, thing, these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in result, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Mick. I'm usually uh, here in the morning, so it's good to be out and about at night time uh, with you guys tonight. Uh, the passage is there before us. My sermon is a QR code on the front here if you'd like to download it. No, that's not true. Uh, there is an outline on the back if you would like to follow along. I'll try and stick to it as we go along. I might pray those with you. Um, gracious Father, thank you for your word and the example of the Apostle Paul here. We pray that we would see his example and that we might delight in your grace. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, Over the past 25 years or so I've been a Christian, uh, one of the things that I've had the great privilege of doing is hearing lots of people's testimony about how uh, they've become Christian and how they've come to follow Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Sometimes people get it right when they're giving their testimony. Some people seem to make it about themselves, which is really not the point of what a testimony is about. It's testifying to the goodness of God in the midst of their lives and the things that have gone on in their lives. And that's the trick, so to speak, of any testimony. It's to make sure that you glorify God and give praise to Jesus and not praise to yourself as you testify to God's goodness in the midst of all of those things. The most powerful testimonies are the ones where you're able to get the balance right between telling your story but also telling God's story and pointing those who hear it Uh, to God and his grace. And as I've thought about testimonies, uh, one of the recurring themes is weakness, which is really something that is picked up in the passage today. Um, You don't have to have a fancy testimony, right? Uh, The whole point is to testify to the goodness of God, and it may be in the midst of hearing someone's testimony, you've heard them say something like, I tried to do things my own way, but realised it wasn't working, weakness, so I turned to God. Um, As I was driving along, I felt empty and alone, so I pulled the car over and started crying, weakness. And in that moment, I called out to God. Or maybe you're a Christian kid who's grown up in the church. Maybe it's been, although I've grown up knowing the promises of God, I realised that my life and actions didn't match up with my words, that I needed to change, that I needed to take God more seriously. Maybe you've had none of those experiences. My point, though, is that in the midst of all of these things, we see God's work and power in the midst of people's weakness in their lives. His grace captures a person's heart and that transforms them into uh, repentance and faith. That's the work of God in those persons' lives of repentance and faith. And it's that ongoing work of repentance and faith in our lives. And that movement of Weakness to power is what we see in this passage before us today, particularly in the life of Paul and his work as an apostle. Now, if you've been coming along recently, you would have heard a sermon on 2 Corinthians 10 and 2 Corinthians 11, strangely enough. Uh, And here we are here, uh, building on what's gone before. And we've seen the danger of these so-called super or false apostles and what they were in relation to the Corinthians and how much of a danger they were to them. Not only were they saying Paul's not the real deal, chapter 10, that's my paraphrase, but the ministry of these false apostles was one of deception, chapter 11, verse 3, 
And in the end, they proclaimed another Jesus and another gospel entirely in chapter 11, verse 4. So in foolishness, Paul decides to join in and do some boasting of his own. And what we have to see through all of this is that unlike the so-called super apostles, Paul's boast is not in his gifts, his visions, or being an apostle. Rather, his boast is in his weakness and the power of weakness and God at work in him. So let's have a look. Have a look with me at verse 11. If you need a Bible, there's some up the back, I'm sure, if you'd like to follow along. Let me read verse 16. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with, the, with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. Sounds foolish, doesn't it? Now, one of my favourite shows as a young lad, and many of you probably here have never seen it, is uh, The A-Team. Who's actually seen The A-Team before? Okay, note their age. Uh, and one of my favourite characters was Mr T. He's up here on the screen. Mr T is now a pastor of a church. He has a great Twitter account if you want to go on. He testifies to his faith in Jesus all the time. And uh, one of his favourite lines, as it says up there, uh, is, I pity the fool. And you've got to say it like that, right? I pity the fool, because that's how he talks, right? Uh, well, maybe it wasn't Mr. T who came up with this famous line, and Paul was the man who came up with this line after all, because in this passage here, in that little section that we read, he calls everyone a fool. Paul seems to call himself a fool for joining in and doing a little boasting. He calls the Corinthians fools for putting up with the false apostles in verse 20. So foolish that they would let them enslave them and abuse them. And he, Paul calls the false, these apostles, these super apostles, fools for the way they speak and the way they treat the Corinthians. Fools! So Paul's boasting and foolishness, though, is different. He's boasted a number of times. Uh, we've seen in chapter 1, verse 12, that he has boasted about his life and his conduct towards the other believers. In verse 12, he says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations to you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. So Paul's boasted about that. In verse 8 of chapter 10, he's boasted about his authority as an apostle. For even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. And most importantly, here in chapter 10, verse 13, he says, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us, a field that reaches even to you. So Paul is boasted a number of times, and he'll boast here within limits and in the field that God has assigned to him, which is what he goes on to do in verse 21 in the second half there. And as you notice what he boasts about, have a look, verse 21 in the second sentence there, what anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. 
Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Paul's saying, like Evander Holyfield, I am the real deal. Don't question my upbringing and my education. Sure, I was born outside of Israel, but I grew up in Palestine and I was taught by Gamaliel and educated under the strict view of the patriarchal law in Jerusalem itself. Don't question my connection to God's covenant. I'm an Israelite. Don't question my connection to Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. And don't you dare question if I'm a true servant of Christ because I'm more. Paul didn't say it like that though, did he? Uh, I don't know if you know, but Paul was probably verbalising these, talking these words out to a scribe who would have been writing down these words for him. And I can picture him as, his, as the scribe furiously writing down all these things. Paul's probably walking around the room, putting his hands on his head, throwing his hands in the air, thinking, what am I doing? I'm out of my mind talking like this. Who does this? <laughs> but it's at this point that Paul teaches the Corinthians, and I think us, what it means to be a better servant of Christ. Have a look, verse 23. What's his credentials? What his, what's his CV? when it comes to thinking about what it means to be a servant of Christ, well, it says there, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I've received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. It goes on, right? That's the CV. That's his front page. What qualifies him as a servant of Christ is his hard work, his persecution, the abuse that he's faced, the danger and the discomfort. I wonder when we need another assistant minister if that's what we'll post on Southern Cross. <laughs> Tell us about your weakness, brother or sister. But notice above all in verse 28 what his true weakness is. Verse 28, because everything else I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. But not only that, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not burn inwardly. Paul's chief weakness is his anxiety about the churches and his care for the individual Christians that he encounters. He's weak with those who are weak. For those who are led into sin, he burns inwardly. That is, he's angry about it. This is the type of pastor that we need, brothers and sisters. Someone who's going to care for his church. Someone who cares about the sins of the people, who is really sad when others are led astray from sin. And this is what qualifies Paul as a servant of Christ. His persecutions, his sufferings and his care for the church. Notice what he doesn't say, right? He doesn't say that he's a good speaker. He doesn't talk about his successful ministry at the churches that he's planted or any of his church planting at all, for that matter. <clears throat> he doesn't talk about his spiritual gifts. He'll go on to talk about his visions, but in a particular way. His boast is what? His weakness. The fragility of his life and his concern for the godliness of the churches. I want to be in that guy's church, right? I want him to be my pastor, and I want to be a pastor like him. But he goes on in the next section in verse 30 to talk not only about his weakness as a servant of Christ, but his own personal weakness. He gets really personal at this point, right? 
Paul makes it so personal that he shares about his personal weakness. Have a look at verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Later in verse 5 of chapter 12, he says the same thing. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. And here, as it was read, we see two examples of Paul's weakness, right? The first, when he gets led, let out of the side of the city in a basket, that's fairly humiliating. And later, he's thorn in his flesh. You can read about the circumstances of the basket incident in Acts chapter 9. Paul's been preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Son of God in the synagogues. He's been proving to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And of course, the Jews, with the help of the local authorities, don't like it and they plot to kill him. His friends, though, and his disciples lower him down the wall in a basket in the middle of the night and he escapes. And this left an indelible mark on Paul as he began his ministry. I can still remember the day that I fell over in front of the assembly at school when I received an award in front of 800 of my fellow students down the stairs in front of the whole school. It's left a mark on my mind forever. And it seems that's what happened here with Paul, this lowering down through the city walls in the middle of the night. I mean, he's had such a successful start. He was converted. He starts preaching. People are coming to Christ. And then suddenly he's getting lowered out the side of the city in a basket. He must have felt so successful and then so weak and a failure. His greatest weakness, though, is what he talks about next in the thorn in his flesh, which we read about in verse 7 of chapter 12. This thorn was given to Paul by God because of the visions and revelations that he experienced. Have a look with me in chapter 12, verse 2 to 4. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now, this is a strange way for Paul to talk about himself, right? He's talking about himself in the third person. And we all know talk, talking about yourself in the third person is what? Pretentious, right? <laughs> Don't do it. It's bad. But Paul does it for a reason. He does it on purpose because his point is, it's not about me and it's not about the visions. It's what happened because of it, right? I think if we would have this experience, we'd want to talk about it all the time, right? That's not Paul's point, though. Paul shares it not to make himself out to be a special Christian or because he thinks it'll give him extra status or kudos with the false apostles, but rather he tells us the story so that we might know about his what? Verse 5, his weakness. So no one will think more of him than is warranted. I thought you'd have lots of questions about this verse and paradise, and so I thought I might briefly put the sermon aside just to talk about what this might be. Uh, this is my version of it, uh, and Ben may have a different thought. Uh, when we think about these things, I think there are things that are what, uh, what's called first order issues, which are things like, how is someone saved? Is Jesus God? 
those types of things, right? You've you got to get those right. And then there are some things which are second-order issues, which are important, but not gospel issues. And then there are things like I'm about to talk about. So, <laughs> here's my best guess at what I think Paul's talking about here. How do we think about what he's talking about here with third heavens, paradise, and those types of things? I think he's actually talking about the intermediate state, what Jesus calls paradise to the thief at the cross. Here are some top five things. Is it five? Four things that I think. First, we can tell from the scriptures here in verse 2 that Paul is the person who had the visions. Paul still remembers when it, when it happened 14 years ago, verse 2, which means it's approximately, given the dating of this book and the book of Galatians, that it was probably around 43 AD, sometime between when he was converted and his arrival in Antioch. There's this 10 years or so of Paul's life where he went away by himself and we don't really know what happened in that 10 years and that this sort of happened in that time. And while he was away, he had this very sudden or very quick vision we're not sure, as Paul does here, we're not sure about what happened with his body when he had this experience. We know that it was a rational experience, though, because he heard things and he's able to talk about it. Most importantly, though, I think we need to read verse 2 in parallel with verses 3 and 4 so we can understand what the third heaven is and what paradise is. I think there's some classic biblical parallelism going on here. And so we need to understand the third heaven and paradise together. The third heaven is best understood, I think, as a reference to the highest heaven, the place where paradise resides. And I think the emphasis on the, the third heaven here is about height. While paradise, which is what Jesus talks about with the thief on the cross in Luke 23 and later in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7, is the place or the depth where the tree of life is present and where Jesus lives and blesses his people who are with him. This paradise or heavenly garden, the Eden above, is a place where Jesus grants immortality and life to believers. Paradise, and of course there is Sheol, or the grave. Together, Paul seems to have visited this hidden place in his vision, this dwelling place of the righteous dead, which is located within the third heaven, the house of God. Whatever happened, though, Paul heard inexpressible things that he isn't allowed to talk about, which is a shame. In response to this, though, Paul's point, as I've said before, is not to marvel at what happened. Rather, his point is to commend his weakness to us. Have a look again at verse 7. Therefore, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, given by God, used by Satan. Again, an interesting Thing to talk about. Um, as I've read commentaries on this, there are at least 17 different interpretations of what it is, this thorn in the flesh. Uh, given that we don't want to be here too late tonight, here's my best take at what the thorn in the flesh is. 
I'm really glad Jono gave me this passage. (laughs) No, it's okay. All right, from the passage, it seems that this thorn in the flesh was given to Paul as a direct consequence of his vision, verse 7. It caused Paul pain, either physical or psychological, and he asked God to take it away, verses 7 and 8. It was permanent, and God wouldn't take it away despite Paul's prayers, verses 8 to 9. It was humbling and designed to keep Paul from becoming conceited, verse 7. It caused Paul to feel weak, verses 9 and 10. Yet it caused Paul to boast, verse 9. And it was even a source of delight, verse 10. That's all we've got. There are 17 different interpretations. I think the point is that Paul doesn't care. And we just need to go with it. Because what's his point? As I've said about five times already, the point is not the thorn. The point is weakness. The climax of the passage comes then in verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, and I think it's Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's boast is his weakness. He's learned, it seems the hard way, that God's promise, my grace is sufficient for you, is true, and that because of that, Christ's power rests on him. That God's power is over him and protects him in the midst of his life. The whole idea of being over him is the same idea in the Old Testament of God's spirit being over his people, over the temple, God's resting over. And this is why Paul delights in his weakness and can say, when I'm weak, then I am strong. And you can see at this point why the Corinthians thought he was a what? A fool. So how do we think about this passage today? If you're following along on the outline, there's two thought bubbles that I just want to briefly share. The first one is about weakness and Christian ministry. I think this passage has lots to teach those of us who are in full-time vocational ministry. How should we think about ourselves and our weakness? What priorities servants of Christ should pursue for their churches and their ministry? But as I look around, there's only two people in this room who that applies to, so I think there's something for you guys as well who are leaders here at this church. You may not be in vocational ministry, but some of you may be Bible study leaders, youth leaders, kids leaders. You may be leading your friends at school or university. Paul gives us a really strong thing here to think about, in particular about what it means to be successful in our ministry and how this idea of weakness and delighting in weakness fits is really important. I think as we think about success in ministry, we often don't think about weakness, do we? We think about power. We think about authority. Paul's life and ministry, though, is a model for us. It would seem that the most powerful, gospel-centred ministry will happen when we trust in God's grace 
and his power rests on us. It's not about you. It's not about having a fancy band. It's not about having fancy lights. It's not about meeting in a nice place, although they're all good, right? What matters is God's grace and mercy. I think this is a particular problem for our tribe of evangelicals. We seem to have a problem with celebrity pastors at times. We're always looking for the next book. There's no end of conferences that you could go to. And what it does, I think, it leads us to think that God is obviously more at work in that place and not here. Which means that we're always looking for the next thing, right? The next program, the next book, the next course, the next conference. Maybe success, though, is a faithful team working together, preaching Christ, trusting in God for his provision, discipling people in the gospel, seeking the lost and praying for God's leading in all that happens. I didn't know what was happening then. (laughs) But what about weakness in the Christian life? And I think this is one of the great paradoxes of our faith. The words of the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, is not only for the Apostle Paul, but it applies to us today. Whatever experiences and circumstances of life make us feel powerless... Today, as children of God's, God's grace is sufficient. One of the things that we want is to be in control of our lives, right? To take charge of our destiny and our plans. It's what Disney teaches us every movie we watch, right? (laughs) Sooner or later, despite the power that we might have, bad stuff happens, right? Our intellect... Our health, our wealth, our influence or position, we become powerless and we become vulnerable. And it's in those moments when we humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord in our powerlessness that the grace of Christ is shown and the power of Christ rests upon us. I don't think Jesus is calling us through his grace to be passive, though. I think often when we hear of weakness, we think it's just being weak and resigning ourselves and just being defeated, right? But that's not what the Apostle Paul says here, right? He's active. God's grace, his power, his love, his mercy. In the midst of those things, God calls us to acceptance of our weaknesses and to acknowledge it like Paul and then to trust him. And that's what? Is having trust active or passive? It's active, right? To trust him. And it's through this active faith that God's grace and power can do its work in our lives and ministry. So if you're feeling weak, that's okay. Boast in your weakness and call out to God. If you're struggling with something, if you're ill, 
If you're being persecuted at uni or school, call out to God. Trust in his goodness and mercy because as Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. You don't have to be tough. What you need to do is just call out, acknowledge your weakness. And that can be tough in and of itself, right? But God's grace is sufficient and his power is is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in us in weakness. Thank you that your power is on us and rests on us. May the Apostle Paul be here, be our example, as you were the example to him. Help us to delight in weakness, for when we are weak, then you are strong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.